I'm kidding. Okay, well, this is Pastor Patrick Hines. Welcome to today's program. A little something different uh, today. I got a Zoom account. Um, people have told me that um, it'd be good if I did some interviews, and uh, people get tired of just listening to me jaw all the time. So, uh, I've invited uh, a dear friend, a dear brother uh, in Christ, uh, who's also a seminary student, uh, and I'm trying to sort of sort of oversee his uh, seminary education <laughs> for for some time now. And um, but I wanted to do an interview with a brother, um, and, uh, talk about a real important topic, um, uh, the importance of theology and, and why, uh, why go through all the, the trouble of getting a seminary degree and, and doing all that work. Um, but before, before we, we dig into the topic here, I got a bunch of stuff written down here, a bunch of notes to go through, but this real, real quick, well, Luke, could you introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, for us? Well, I'm for just putting you on the spot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anyone on your channel knows who I am. My name's Luke Stacy. Um, I've been attending seminary through LAMP Theological Seminary for about two years now. Um, Patrick is overseeing that in the session at, at Bridwell Heights is overseeing that. It's been great. Um, uh, currently working here for a church in Hatboro, Pennsylvania called Covenant Presbyterian Church, helping out with uh, teaching and preaching here. And it's uh, been a good time. So. Okay, great. All right, let's uh, with no more ado, let's uh, dig right into it here. I'm sure you um, will both have plenty to say, and uh, we'll try to keep this under under eight hours if possible. <laughs> okay, so first, so first, um, what is theology? What is that? It's the study of God. Study of God. Okay, and is that all you want to say? Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as far as a definition, yeah, I would say it's a st the studying of God and uh, the precepts of the Christian religion. Yeah. So it's really theology is um, the study of God. And it's, it's the study of God as he has revealed himself um, in special revelation. And, uh, you know, one thing uh, R.C. Sproul has helped the, the world to understand, uh, those that have been willing to listen, is that there used to be in universities, there would be a department of theology. And that was eventually changed to the department of religion. Mm -hmm. And um, he tells a very interesting story about uh, going to speak at a, at a Christian college, and they wanted him to speak on what a Christian college should be. And he noticed that they, the college didn't have a department of theology, it had a department of religion. And he had to ask them, when did that change? And, you know, what happened? And there was a guy there with a, with a uh, gray, white hair, you know, had remembered that from way back when they changed it. Uh, yeah. But it really, it really, it grows out of um, uh, not really believing the Bible is God's word anymore. So now you just have a department of religion of human, you know, attempts to make sense of God, and instead of the study of the Bible, which is really mm -hmm. what theology is, is is that. Yeah. So why is theology so important, Luke? Well, I mean, there is so much that could be said about that, but I mean, you think the first, the first commandment, the first and the foremost commandment, as Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your might. You can't love someone you don't know. If you don't know who God is, you can't love him. And, you know, you, you hear so often people who claim to be Christians and they'll say, oh, you know, you'll you'll quote something from the o Old Testament. You get to talking to them and they're like, oh, well, I can't worship a God like that. Well, you don't know who God is then. And you don't worship that God. You're really worshiping a figment of your imagination. And I mean, it is just such a heavy and a weighty thing. You need to know who God is. You can't can't love someone you don't know. 
And you can't be saved if you don't know who God is. I mean, that's it's a fundamental and a matter of eternity, what you believe yeah. about God. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that Machen, I'm going to read a couple of Machen quotes eventually, but I just looked this one up because you, your your comments made me remember this um, quotation. Uh, early in the chapter, in chapter two, in Christianity and Liberalism, uh, God and Man, Machen makes this point about friendship. Like you said, you can't know, you, you can't love and worship someone you don't know. Uh, and that, that's true with God. And um, Machen wrote, wrote here, it is unnecessary, we are told, to have a conception of God. Theology or the knowledge of God, it is said, is the death of religion. We should not seek to know God, but should merely feel his presence. With regard to this objection, it ought to be observed that if religion consists merely in feeling the presence of God, it is devoid of any moral quality, whatever. Pure feeling, if there be such a thing, is non-moral. What makes affection for a human friend, for example, such an ennobling thing is the knowledge we possess of the character of our friend. Human affection, apparently so simple, is really just bristling with dogma. <laughs> what do you think of that quote? Uh, that's a that's a great quote. You know, I mean, the analogies often made is people who say that they love God and don't know God. Well, what would you say of a man who, who talks about how much he loves his wife? Say, what's the, what, what's some of the things she likes? I don't know. I just know I love her. Well, yeah. When's her birthday? Well, I, I don't know, but I love her. It's like, well, yeah. what's her favorite dessert? I don't know, but I love her. It's like, you don't know anything about someone. You can't love them. And, you know, right. I've been married for almost five years now. The more I get to know my lovely wife, the more I love her because the more I know about her and the more I can love her. And that's really yeah. when, when you're a Christian and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and you will come to the scriptures and you will study the Bible and you will grow in your affections for God because you will grow in your knowledge for God. Mm, mm, that's great. That's a, I like what you just said, that um, the more you know her, the more you can love her. Because the the more the more that she reveals about herself, just like God reveals Himself to us, that's the key to intimacy. If I if I don't yeah. know someone, if they're a stranger to me, I really can't have affection for them because it's the really, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's the doctrines I know are true of that person's character that causes me to have deep affection for them. And so, yeah, I think Machen really hit the nail on the head there. That whole notion that, you know, religion and the Christian faith is just about experiencing a feeling of dependence. Um, like, like you said, I was just thinking, what if you said that about the girl you were going to get married to? I don't know anything about her. I just like to feel that she's near or something like that, or I <laughs> have a sense of dependence on. And that just doesn't make any yeah. sense. So, yeah, it's our knowledge of God that makes us makes us able uh, to love them. All right, to love him. Okay. Um, what are, uh, wh why, why are theological convictions essential to ministry? Why is it es essential to have convictions? Oh my goodness. Uh, I don't even know where to start with that one. I mean, you don't have conviction. What are you doing in the pulpit? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of you asking that question really reminds me of J.C. Rowland, his book on holiness. He does the analogy with the jellyfish clergyman. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, from, he from says, that. Uh, actually, I have the quote right here. Um, yeah, he said, it. we have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity. They have no definite opinion. They belong to no school or party. They are so afraid of extreme views. They have no views at all.
end quote. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're going to get in the pulpit, you, you better have some metal in your bones to be able to stand up there yeah. and says, thus says the Lord. And because when you get out of that pulpit, you're going to get pushback from all kinds of people from all kinds of different areas. And you need, to, you need to be well-grounded in the word and convicted of it and not just simply give lip service to it, but be convicted yeah. of it to the extent that you actually hold to it and practice it in your life. It's not orthodoxy that's divorced from practice. You have orthodoxy yeah. and orthopraxy. Yeah. You have to live that. You have to hold to those principles and not just simply profess those principles. Wow. Well said. That reminds me of a, another a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon and lectures to my students. I was listening to the audible version of that the other day. And um, this, this little section jumped out as I was moving about my day. So I looked mm-hmm. it up and read it and it, the chapter it's lecture 16. It's called the need of decisions for the truth, meaning being decided about what you believe, having strong convictions. The Spurgeon mm-hmm. wrote, wrote this. We have a fixed faith to preach my brethren. And we are set, sent forth with a definite message from God. We are not let to fabricate the message as we go along. We are not sent forth by our master with a general commission arranged on this fashion, quote, as you shall th- think in your heart and invent in your head, so preach. Keep abreast of the times. Whatever the people want to hear, tell them that, and they shall be saved, end quote. Mm. Verily, we read not so. There is something definite in the Bible. It is not quite a lump of wax to be shaped in our will, or a roll or cloth to be cut according to the prevailing fashion. Your great thinkers evidently look upon the scriptures as a box of letters for them to play with and make of what they want. Uh, or a wizard's bottle out of which they may pour anything they choose from atheism up to spiritualism. And then he, he speaks about people preach things as my particular views. This is my view on this mm. rather than thus saith the Lord. And then he says this, we have to deal with God or actually let me back up a couple of sentences. I could read all this. He says, um, believing therefore that there is such a thing as truth and such a thing as falsehood, that there are truths in the Bible and that the gospel consists in something definite, which is to be believed by men. It becomes to us to be decided as to what we teach and to teach it in a decided manner. We have to deal with men who will be either lost or saved, and they certainly will not be saved by erroneous doctrine. We have to deal with God, whose servants we are, and he will not be honored by our delivering falsehoods, neither will he give us a reward and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast mangled the gospel as judiciously as any man that ever lived before thee. Mm. That's that's great stuff. Yeah. You gotta yeah, be decided. Me. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you have to be decided. I mean, that, that reminds me of in Jude, I believe it's verse three, where he says, the faith that was once for all handed down. The faith is not a loose leaf binder. You don't pop open those three rings and add in whatever you want. No, 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 no. This is a nice bound book. It's not being yeah. added to now. We have the faith. And yeah. you have no one has any business standing in a pulpit saying anything that is not expressly taught in the in God's word. And you need to be ready to defend God's word and preach only God's word. Mm-hmm. Amen. Well said. All right. How does America's relativistic spirit of the age hinder the propagation of the gospel? I'm pitching you uh, some some ones. I want. To, yeah. Good. Uh, I mean, relativism is just a cancer. 
It, it is yeah. it is a cancer in any society. I mean, the idea that two people can be equally true, two opposing views can be equally true is just appalling. And I mean, that is just represents such a dumbing down of the people today. And it's like, you, you know, people don't even hold the propositions anymore. And um, yeah. it's just, I, it, it's it's insane because people, when you go out and you do evangelism, you come across some of these people. There's really not that many relativists out there walking the streets, but there are some. And when you come across them, they'll just be like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, they'll agree with you and go along with you. But then they there's a disconnect because they don't understand that what you're saying, if it is true, which it is true, that means they're false, but they have this false view in their mind that I can be true and you can be true and we're all true and it's all equally valid, but it's not. And that's, that's not how the world works. That's not how propositions work. And it, it's really just an erroneous view. And yeah. we need to fight against that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, when I was in the corporate world for 11 years, I was a computer programmer and the people that I got a chance to share the gospel with, I noticed that many of them had the impression I, I could tell reflecting on this later that I, what I was telling them was here's what works for me. Mm -hmm. and and that i wasn't actually making absolute truth claims and so that's that's one thing i think our relativistic age sometimes they, they don't really even understand what we're saying what what yeah. we're saying is that this is the only way to be that you can be reconciled to god and that that's a real um people really dislike that but yeah. the thing is i think the the ancient world into which the gospel um came uh, in those early centuries they didn't like that either and yeah. that's what got that's what got those early Christians in trouble was not they, that they believed in in something. It was that they believed in something to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah. So, yeah, that also reminds me again of another J.C. Rock quote in chapter 19. So let me pull it up here. Chapter 19. Yeah. And point two here, he says, quote, carried away by fancy liberality and charity. They seem to think everybody is right and nobody is wrong. Every clergyman is sound and none are unsound. Everybody is going to be saved and nobody is going to be lost. Their religion is made up of negatives and they all, and the only positive thing about them is that they dislike distinctness and think all extreme and decided and positive views are very naughty and very wrong. These people live in a kind of mist or fog. They see nothing clearly and do not know what they believe themselves, end quote. I mean, that's J.C. Rowell write this like the 1800s. I mean, this is. Yeah, I was just thinking, crazy. what year? That's that's like 125, 30 years ago, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, there's nothing new. It, that's the very same thing today. People um, uh, are they're just appalled that you know we would have convictions that we actually hold to uh, so much so that anything contrary to them we see as false. But Luke, isn't that really just a reflection of our belief that the Bible is God's word? Yeah, because that's what the the reason that we speak with conviction and exclusive conviction is because if the Bible really is what it, it claims to be, then how could we hold to that relativistic idea? The apostles didn't, yeah. Jesus didn't, the prophets didn't, Moses didn't. It's you either you either accept and believe that this is the truth, or or you need to reject it if you're honest. So. Yeah. And that's one thing that's interesting in, in Christianity and liberalism. Um, 
Machen really hammers that point that the real problem with liberal theology is it's just plain dishonest. Yeah. Honest is not honest. You you don't believe what that this is God's word or that this is what God has said. Yeah. And you know, the world's chorus will cry out intolerant, but you know, all truth is is really all truth is exclusive. Any truth mm-hmm. claim is exclusive. So I mean, That's you right. essentially you're closing your off really any kind of meaningful meaningful communication at any point then yeah 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 that's that's a key key point there all all claims are exclusive and and all claims um even even claims that we should be tolerant of everything uh the the claim that everything is true that's another thing machin brings out in christianity and liberalism is that liberals you know attack of people like you and me for having convictions and machin says but they have com- convictions that are every bit as close-minded and dogmatic as ours, mm. right? Yeah, they yeah, just they, they just pretend not to. But okay, um, let me read this BB Warfield quote. BB War- Warfield wrote a, an essay called "The Religious Life of Spiritual of Theological Students." The religious life of theological students. He says this in the first two paragraphs: "I am asked to speak to you on the religious life of the student of theology." I approach the subject with some trepidation. I think it is the most important subject which can engage our thought. You will not suspect me in saying this to be depreciating the importance of the intellectual preparation of the student for the ministry. The importance of the intellectual preparation of the student for the ministry is the reason of the existence of our theological seminaries. Say what you will, do what you will. The ministry is a learned profession. And the man without learning no matter what other gifts he may be endowed with, is unfit for its duties. Why, I mean, why is that? Why is that, Luke? I mean, if you don't, if you don't know the scriptures, if you can't defend the scriptures, then how are you going to preach the scriptures? How are you going to impart this faith off to other people? And <laughs> you know, I mean, it is so, 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 so very important to be able to know the scripture well enough that you can go to these passages, that you can defend them, that you can defend the deity of Christ that you can defend the virgin birth of Christ because there are no end to people who will deny the gospel on every front to deny essentials of the faith on every front. And you have to be prepared and you can't be prepared if you don't know about it. I mean, think of Paul's charge to men in first Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. How are Mm -hmm. you going to stand firm in the faith and defend it? If you don't even know it. And You know, as a minister, someone who stands in the pulpit, you are held to such a higher degree as every pew sitter. You need to be the example to everyone else there that you know the scriptures so well that you can defend them on the spot. And, and yes. that requires knowing the biblical languages. And it's yep. very hard to uh, do that on your own, which is why you need seminaries and colleges and things to teach this to us. Because, I mean, there's a lot you need to know to be prepared for this. Yeah. 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 One thing I remember a great Luther quote years ago um, where he said, yeah, we have to study church history and we have to study the history of theology. And we got to look at what our uh, Christian forefathers, what they how they exegeted and interpreted scripture and what they saw there. And Luther said, if we don't do that, if we don't learn from those who have gone before us, his quote was every man would go to hell in his own way. Yeah. Because we we have to to gain from the hard work and the battles that have gone before us, mm-hmm. and we also have to devote ourselves to the study of the text of Scripture. 
uh, like Warfield said, there's no getting around it. It's a learned profession. And it requires that you you know theology, you know how to exegete scripture, that you don't make silly mistakes and the way you interpret parables and things like that. That's that's one thing. I'm sure you've seen the same thing. I've seen um, opponents of Reformed theology. They, you, you see them making basic hermeneutical and exegetical errors constantly. And yeah. but that's yeah. why that's why studying is so important. So, yeah. and, and wouldn't you also say just speaking about studying church history and the studying the works of past reformers wouldn't you say that it is the height of arrogance to ignore the confessions the creeds and the catechisms that have been given to us through the centuries i mean these these are men that god has gifted with extraordinary yeah. abilities and who have spent yeah. like the, a lot of them spent their lives defending certain aspects yeah. of the faith why in the world would we think that we are so much better that we can't even benefit from these great men that God has gifted his church with. I mean, that's just the height yeah. of arrogance. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's presumptuous and it is, it's arrogant. Um, really to not, not to believe that Jesus has been building his church and that he's mm -hmm. sanctifying her and that, you know, battles have been fought and won. And as you know, mm -hmm. from studying the Westminster standards, that's one thing I always go over with uh, folks when we do the, the new members classes. We want, we read that entire confession. It usually takes several months to do that. But I'll point out to them, does anyone know what debate they're addressing here? Does anyone know what historical debate this line's yeah. about? And this line, and this mm -hmm. line. It's like th they put all these not, not this, and not this, and not this, and not this, because those are the kinds of errors that already come up. And if we don't know them, we're going to end up reinventing them. Yeah. We end up reinventing them. Yeah, okay, Warfield. Really uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the bar has just been so lowered in the modern church for what we expect of people. It's just, it is just repugnant because I mean, think of Paul's words. I mean, he blistered or, okay. I'm saying Paul yeah. in Hebrews chapter five. Um, I forget. Yeah. Not everyone thinks Paul wrote Hebrews, but yeah, um, yeah. in Hebrews chapter five, he blisters, he blisters, the author blisters his, his people because mm -hmm. He makes reference to Melchizedek. Well, these people don't know who Melchizedek is. And think about it. Melchizedek's name is mentioned twice in the Hebrew text. Genesis yeah. 14 and Psalm 110. So mm -hmm. most people would think, hey, obscure character, probably not that important to pay attention to. But I mean, he, mm -hmm. he tells him, he blisters him. He's like, you guys are dull of hearing. And you know, that um, Greek word is really should be translated as lazy or sluggish. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I can't remember exactly what it is here. Let me see if I can't. Yeah. 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 I remember that passage. Yeah. You ought, by not this throwing. time, you ought to be teachers. But what is yeah. it? It's not Roy. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, every lexicon I have has lazy or sluggish listed as a semantic range for it. But I mean, he says concerning him, we have much saying it's hard to explain since you have become lazy of hearing. How lazy is the church today? I mean, these people didn't know who Melchizedek was, who's mentioned twice in the entire yeah. Old Testament. And he calls them lazy and, and yeah. being sluggish for not knowing this. How much more so are we in the modern church? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of folks today, you know, we, we've got to work on being Bible readers again mm -hmm. um, and just being familiar with the English Bible. You know, that's a, a big part of, um, you know, it's interesting if even if you read skeptics and opponents of Christianity from just a couple hundred years ago, they they knew a lot of scripture. 
um, because they knew they had to if they were going to attack the faith because the average churchgoer was actually pretty well catechized and uh, knew this knew the scriptures pretty well. Um, but Warfield goes on here. He says, um, but learning, though indispensable, is not the most indispensable thing for a minister. Able to teach, yes, the minister must be able to teach and observe that what I say, or rather what Paul says, is apt to teach. Not apt merely to exhort, to beseech, to appeal, to entreat, not even merely to testify, to bear witness, but to teach. Mm. And teaching implies knowledge. He who teaches must know. Paul, in other words, requires of you, as we are perhaps learning uh, not very felicitously to phrase it, instructional, not merely inspirational. Mm. But aptness to teach alone does not make a minister, nor is it his primary qualification. It is only one of a long list of requirements which Paul lays down as necessary to meet in him who aspires to this high office. Okay, so what, what Warfield's kind of pointing out here is you can know everything, which you need to, and you need to be able to teach it, but you've also got to be all this other stuff. And listen to what he says here. He says, and all the rest concern, not his intellectual, but his spiritual fitness. A minister must be learned on pain of being utterly incompetent for his work. But before and above being learned, a minister must be godly. Hmm. Nothing could be more fatal, however, than to set these things over against one another. Mm. And Luke, don't you think people do that sometimes? Well, this guy's really yeah. godly. He's really nice. He's really sweet. It's like, yeah, but he doesn't know anything about the Bible. Yeah, Maybe he is a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People often will choose someone who has, who can talk about the warm fuzzies of the faith and is just such a mm -hmm. nice man. And, you know, he mm -hmm. seems so godly, but he doesn't know yeah. any of the content of the faith. You can't yeah. impart what you don't know. You can't teach what you don't know. It's, you have to have mm -hmm. both. It's not either or. It's both. Yeah, listen to this. Uh, Warfield goes on to point out, you need to be learned, able to teach, and also godly. He says this, recruiting officers do not dispute whether it is better for soldiers to have a right leg or a left leg. Soldiers must have both legs. Oh, that's a great <laughs> analogy. Yeah, yeah. He said, listen to this one. He says, sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate yeah. response? How about 10 hours over your books on your knees? Oh, man. Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books or feel that you must from your books turn away in order to turn to God? If learning and devotion are as antagonistic as that, then the intellectual life is in itself accursed, and there can be no question of a religious life for a student, even of theology. The mere fact that he is a student inhibits religion. Mm. Don't you wish people wrote like that today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we need we need ministers right. like that in the pulpit. We really do. Yeah, I could mean... bring learning, learning and godliness, learning and an air of heaven with them. So. Mm. Yeah. 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 There's, there's just the present attitude of just anti-intellectualism. They don't, they don't really want people to use big words that you might not know or to speak in a way, you know, it's because they don't know. And it's just kind of the dumbing down of the people. Yeah. And it's like, we need to raise the bar. It needs to be brought yeah. up. And, uh, yeah. And it's good. It's helpful. If, 
if our preaching does make people feel like, man, I just don't, I, I just, I'm having a hard time following what you're talking about. It's that's what pastoral ministry is supposed to be about. You come alongside people and try to help them uh, mm -hmm. come to understand. You do need to learn. You know, you need to learn how to think like a Christian. You need to mm -hmm. learn what these terms mean, what the biblical terms mean, and you need to be able to do to understand them so you can follow. Uh, sermons yeah. that are going to really dig into the scriptures. I mean, anyone can stand up and tell, you know, funny stories or warm, warm stories, but we're really supposed to dig into the text of scripture and exposit it. So, yeah. Okay. One, one other thing here, uh, liberalism said that Christianity was not theology or doctrine, but merely a way of life, a way of encouraging self-sacrificial love with Jesus being the ultimate example of self-sacrifice for others. Harry Emerson Fosdick, when he would preach, he was, of course, Machen's great opponent. Fosdick would tell story after story after story from World War I, soldiers who laid down their lives for one another. A grenade would fall into a trench, and a soldier would throw himself on it and, and sacrifice himself to save others. And Jesus is the great example of that that we should imitate and follow. It's not about doctrine. It's about stories of, of self-giving and self-sacrifice because greater love has no one than this and to lay his life down for his friends. Well, what do you think about that? That uh, Christianity is merely a way of life. It's not theology or doctrine. You don't have Christianity anymore. Mm -hmm. That's something totally different. Uh, mm -hmm. Because at the heart of Christianity is the reconciliation of people to God. It's that Christ propitiated the sins of the world. He he died for the sins of his sheep so that he could save a people to himself. If God died just as an if Jesus died on the cross just as an example, then that that may, that fractures the justice of God. I mean, yeah. you have a fractured view of God at that point. If God, if Jesus wasn't being treated as if he had our sins, if there wasn't the great transaction of him getting our sins and us getting his righteousness, then that was injustice. It was injustice. Yeah. And when you lose the cross, when you lose the substitutionary death of Christ, you lose all of Christianity. It doesn't matter what you get right at that point. If you get that wrong, it doesn't matter what else you have right. Yeah, that's very right on the money. Uh, Mason said this in Christianity and liberalism in response to that very sentiment, that Christianity is a way of life. It's not a doctrine. He says, if any one fact is clear on the basis of this evidence, and he's just gone through a bunch of stuff in scripture, it is that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message. It was based not upon mere feeling, not upon a mere program of work, but upon an account of facts. In other words, it was based upon doctrine. Yeah. So I think, you know, he saw that so clearly. And as I, um, I don't know if you heard the program I did where I read the uh, obituary that H.L. Mencken, H.L. Mencken um, was an atheist um, who was alive, was a contemporary of Machen. And he, he admired Machen, even though he detested Christianity and detested Calvinism. In fact, he calls John, John Calvin the Geneva Mohammed. Oh. <laughs> but, but Mencken said, when he wrote um, an edit, like an op-ed piece in a newspaper, just kind of when Machen died, Mencken said, yeah, I don't agree with him. And obviously we're coming on totally different, um, from no, totally different perspectives. And he recognized he had been fighting against the rise of liberalism. And Mencken said, anyone with a functioning brain knows that Machen has destroyed his opponents in this book. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Wow. He saw yeah. it. Yeah, he could see it. <laughs> yeah.
Okay. One, one thing too, one last quotation I wanted to read here before we, we wrap up. Um, what about tolerance? Machen said this. He makes a contrast. He shows a contrast in scripture here. I wanted to get your comments on this. He quotes from Philippians 1.18. Remember the men who were preaching Christ from envy and strife and everything? Oh, and, yeah. and yeah. yeah. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, he said, Christ is preached and therein do I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. The way in which the preaching was being carried on was wrong, but the message itself was true. And Paul was far more interested in the content of the message than in the manner of its presentation. Mm. It is impossible to conceive a finer piece of broad-minded tolerance. But the tolerance of Paul was not indiscriminate. He displayed no tolerance, for example, in Galatia. There, too, there were rival preachers. But Paul had no tolerance for them. But though we, he said, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. What is the reason for the difference in the apostles' attitude in the two cases? He says this. The answer is perfectly plain. In Rome, Paul was tolerant because there the content of the message that was being proclaimed by the rival preachers was true. In Galatia, he was intolerant because there the content of the rival message was false. What do you think of that? Should we be tolerant? And if so, of what? We should be tolerant in the fact that if people are preaching the true gospel, whether it be in a way that we don't necessarily like, they use a tone of music or something that we don't necessarily like, if they're preaching the truth, we should be accepting yeah, sure. of that. But once yes. you fracture the message, once yeah. you waffle on the gospel itself, you can have no tolerance for that. I mean, Paul calls down the anathema of God on anyone who would do that, on himself, on an angel from heaven, on anyone. You don't get to change the message. There can be a variety of ways in which the truthfulness of that message is presented, and the motives behind that may be wrong motives. But if the truthfulness of it is presented, then we ought to be tolerant of them, but not if they fracture and change the gospel. Yeah. Okay, very good. And what when Paul writes about that, when he talks about the gospel, if anyone preaches any other gospel, what does he mean by the gospel there in Galatians 1? He's talking about Christ crucified for our sins. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he's talking about having faith in Jesus Christ alone, because it is only by faith in Christ that we will be justified. It's not faith in Mary. It's not faith in an angel. It's not faith in Muhammad. Yeah. It's not faith in any other combination you can think of. It is faith in Christ alone. And if you lose that, then you're not going to be justified before God. You don't have justification. You don't have the gospel. You're not reconciled to God. You're at enmity with God. Wow. Right on. So there are some things we have to get right theologically. Mm. And our theology, um, uh, theology is life, really. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to, to um, get your comments on, I was, I was thinking just reflecting on this about Romans 1, and you know, I preached through Romans a few years ago and um, have, have done a number of podcasts on it. I think, obviously, the book of Romans is perpetually relevant to the world. Oh, yeah. Um, but the problem with man is man's ignorance. Um, and Paul speaks about the blindness that people have because of the ignorance that is in them. What, what is it that they're ignorant of? What is it that they don't know? But theology. Yeah. They don't have a right knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. And so how is that the case? Like, why why is um, a, a right knowledge of God essential um, to the, the Christian church and essential to loving God? Why is that essential? 
No, because you, you can't believe in a God. You can't have faith in a Jesus that you don't know. And yeah. if you don't know who God is, you can't know who you yourself are. And you know, that, I mean, that's a very true statement. You can't know yourself apart from knowing who God is. And because yeah. we are so sinful, we are so vile, we are so evil. But we don't even yeah. come to know that until we understand how holy God is. And yeah. it's only at the backdrop of God's holiness that we can see just how evil we truly are. And until you come to know God, and know him and you can't have faith in him apart from that there's yeah. no salvation apart from a knowledge of god there is no salvation and it's mm -hmm. not that knowing who god is makes you saved i mean the demons believe that they shudder yeah yeah but you have to be born again and that that is essential to having to being reconciled to god is you must be born again and in the new birth you're given a faith that believes in Christ and embraces Christ and truly rests and trusts in Christ. And then you are reconciled to God. Yeah. Yeah. And that can only come from that, that divine enlightenment, that, that divine enlightening. And uh, what you were just saying that really, that's actually the opening, like, you know, the, the Institute of the Christian religion is a massive theological work by John Calvin and the opening point, the opening paragraph of the first book is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he makes that very point that you just made. Mankind does not understand himself until he first is brought up by the divine hand to contemplate the one true God. And we can't contemplate the one true God without true theology, without his revelation in scripture. So for the for the two of us who who work to help people understand scripture, that, that's why we spend all the time that we do studying, because we know that the salvation of everyone that listens to us depends upon that. We've got to get this stuff right yeah. so that men can can hear the truth. People can hear the truth and come to salvation. Yeah. So, okay, brother, what... any, any, any final comments before we wrap up here? I, I was just going to add there at the end, that's why ministers and anyone who teaches the word of God is held to such a high standard. I mean, mm -hmm. The Bible holds them to a high standard because you are essentially becoming the mouthpiece of God, mouthpiece of God when you preach. And people shouldn't just take your word for it when you're speaking from the pulpit, yeah. but often they do. And that's why it is so important that you speak with clarity. You need yeah. people need to be able to understand what we're saying. And it's just yeah. it's so vitally important. Yeah. Clarity is, is, is the need of the hour of my, the guy that taught uh, preaching to us uh, gave us a great quotation. What is a mist in the pulpit will be a thick fog in the pew. That's a great. Point. So, yeah. So we, we have to labor to understand theology because it, without understanding it, uh, people can't come to know Christ. So we've got to be clear. Um, all right. Well, brother, uh, let's do this again sometime soon. That was a wonderful edifying. It's always edifying to talk to you. Um, yes. But uh, yes. you press on, brother, and uh, we'll do this again sometime soon. And everyone that's that saw this, thank you all for watching or for listening. Luke, see you, brother. See you guys. Take care, my man. Bye. Okay. I think I stopped with the recording. <laughs> it shows you yeah. still recording. Did you? Oh, it does? Whoops. Oh, it is still recording.